Good morning. It's good to be back after a, a little bit of a hiatus. I'm uh, grateful to Jerome for preaching last week, and uh, 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 but I have to say, whenever I'm away, uh, it is restful. But at, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm ready to return, <laughs> I'm ready to come back. So it's good to be back with you all. Uh, we're transitioning our series. Uh, we went we before Advent. We're in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. We finished that. Uh, in Habakkuk, we were looking at joy in both God's judgment and God's salvation, and we were wrestling with what does it mean to have joy in, 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 in light of whatever comes to pass. And then as we looked at Advent, we were particularly rejoicing in celebrating the Incarnation. Um, now we're moving to the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be looking particularly uh, at a letter by the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it is maybe maybe not the most familiar of letters. I, I don't know if you guys have heard a bunch of sermon series on it. There might be uh, some familiarity with it, but we're going to be looking at it. I don't think it's the most familiar letter. And it's a letter that addresses the life of the believer. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a picture, a window into the relationship that Paul has with the Thessalonian church, but also the life of the Thessalonian church. Uh, especially as they live at a, in a calamitous and chaotic and hostile world in Thessalonica. Uh, we're going to look at that in a little bit as we look at the background of First Thessalonians. And we're going to see that they didn't have it easy. Um, and this morning, we are just going to be touching on some of the main themes. I want to introduce the letter, and I want to touch on some of the main themes that we will dive into more in depth. At the end of Habakkuk, one of my last sermons that I preached, I touched on the topic of faith, hope, and love, these pillars uh, of the Christian faith. And we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians, which dives into each of those, faith, hope, and love. In fact, it puts it in a different order. Uh, in that great Corinthians passage we read earlier, it's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But here in 1 Thessalonians, it's faith, love, and hope. Um, and we're going to look at that in depth over the coming weeks and months. So with that, let's turn to our text. We're going to be reading just the very beginning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It's printed for you in your bulletins. Uh, you can follow along there or turn in your Bibles as well with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Hear God's word. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace, or grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is your word and that it encourages our hearts with the gospel, that it points us to Jesus. And we ask that as we look at this passage this morning, that we would indeed exalt Jesus Christ. Thank you for this opportunity, and we pray your blessing on us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, New Year's, as, as Rome was talking about, is, is a time of reflection, is a time of uh, taking account of life, right? We look back, we look forward, uh, and it may be for, for us as a culture, us as a world, you could even say, uh, the events of the past two years or, or more has caused a, a deeper reflection um, in many of us. Maybe, maybe not, but I think for many of us it has. What am I about? What is going on with my life? We had a lot of time alone, right? A lot of time in our houses, a lot of time to reflect. Um, we, we asked the question, what's my role in this world? Um, over the course of the pandemic, one thing that happened was there was, of course, laying off of workers. And then as jobs came back, a lot of those workers didn't enter back into uh, the workforce. We, we see that in the statistics, and there are lots of reasons why that might be. Um, some people just decided not to return for, for various reasons, or they returned to completely new jobs. They, they shift jobs. They, they realize, I don't have to do this thing that I've been doing for the past 20 years. I can go and do something new. Um, there was a lot of reflection, um, a lot of evaluation, a lot of reevaluation of what of what things are important to our lives. And as believers, I think it is important for us to take stock. I, I think that we ought to be doing this regularly to examine what's going on in our hearts and lives and ask some of these fundamental types of questions. Um, why do I do the things that I do? What, why? What, what, what am I about? Or where do my affections lie? What do I love most, right? Or what am I looking forward to? What, is, what, is my, what, are, what, am, what am I fixed on in the future? What is, what is my aim or goal toward? Of course, these are only a few of the questions we might ask ourselves. But these questions touch on these three pillars that I mentioned at the outset. These three Things that identify us as Christians and that Paul examines here in 1 Thessalonians. These three pillars of Christianity, faith, hope, and love. Or in the organization of 1 Thessalonians, faith, love, and hope. Now these are found throughout the New Testament, throughout Paul's letters. Uh, but here in 1 Thessalonians, it's, it's as if Paul uses them as a framework For the entire book, he is examining and looking at the life of the Thessalonian church. We're going to look at this in a minute, but he's received a report from the Thessalonians through Timothy, uh, his assistant. And he's heard good reports, and he's, as we'll see in a minute, he's giving thanks to God for them. But as he writes his letter in response, he's considering these three things, their faith, their love, and their hope. And as we do this, as we go through this over the course of the coming weeks, I want us to begin today, as we start that process of reflection, as we start that process of looking at ourselves and thinking about as a church, individually, as church more broadly speaking, I want us to begin by saying first, what I think Paul does here is, look, God is at work in you, believer. God is at work in you. So let's take note of that first, and then let's think about what that work looks like, and then what we are called to in light of that. But first and foremost, look, 
Believer, God is at work in you. We're going to look at this in two parts. First, I want us to look at the, the greeting. And I'm really going to use the greeting as a launching pad to talk about the background of 1 Thessalonians. I always think it's helpful for us to examine the context of what the letter is about. I think it helps us apply. Um, it is, uh, we will see an impetus as we look at the background of Thessal- the Thessalonian life and, and church. Uh, it is the impetus for Paul's letter here. And then secondly, so that's going to be background stuff. And it, I think it, it helps us apply, but then I want us to dive in and, and really wrestle with this, this reality. Look, God is at work. God is at work in you. So first, this introduction. Paul says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. In some ways, this greeting is a very common greeting. This is, this is a fairly generic greeting, but there are some things to note. The first thing to note is that we are introduced to three people. Paul, the author of the letter, and then, of course, his two companions, Silvanus, otherwise known as Silas. Luke, in the book of Acts, calls him Silas. Uh, we'll, we'll see him uh, mentioned. And then uh, Timothy. Uh, his his assistant that he raises up. Um, these three have been traveling together. Uh, Paul is on his second missionary journey after the Jerusalem Council. For those of you who don't remember, you can go back in Acts chapter 15. You can read about it. But in, there was a council that brought uh, the church as small and in its infancy as it was. It brought it together to discuss some weighty matters uh, about uh, situations going on, and, and one of those issues was the question of, do Christians need to be circumcised or not? And the, the answer was no, but they should, you know, for wisdom purposes, avoid food sacrifice to idols and live godly lives. And there were some other things that they wrote in a letter from the Jerusalem Council, and they took that letter, Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas at first took that letter, and they started in Antioch, and then they were going to head off uh, into Asia Minor, to the churches that they had established, and then go off into Macedonia and Greece and ultimately uh, all, all the way to Rome. But when they got to Antioch, Barnabas and Saul actually had a falling out. Uh, not an ultimate falling out, but they had a disagreement over whether to bring John Mark along. Um, and so they parted ways. But instead, Paul takes Silas and he goes off uh, on his journey. And as he goes, uh, eventually Timothy joins them. And they end up in Macedonia. Macedonia is the very border of Europe where, where you have, you know, Turkey on one side, modern-day Turkey on one side, and, or Asia Minor, what you might call. And then Macedonia was Greece on the other side. And you have that, um, that great city, Istanbul, uh, that sits there at the at the. At the at the crossroads, if you will. But Macedonia is sort of the first area of Greece. Um, and Paul and Silas uh, go to, the first city they go to is Philippi. And if you remember anything about Philippi, they get to Philippi and uh, there's a lot that happens, but they end up in prison. Uh, uh, there's a great earthquake. The prison doors fall open, but all the prisoners stay. The guard's about to kill himself, but they realize, he realizes, Paul says, no, stop, we're here and the, the prison guard turns to Christ. But anyway, 
the town folks, the town leaders find out and they say to Paul, who's a Roman citizen, you guys have to get out of Dodge. You've got to leave Philippi. You've got to go on your way. And they go from Philippi to Thessalonica. And this is where we meet uh, the Thessalonians. Uh, a little bit about Thessalon- Thessalonica. It was a major, it was the major Macedonian city, a city of some prominence. Uh, It was elevated in Roman times to a capital city of the region. It was the port city. It was the crossroads of sort of Asia and and Europe. This was an important city, and Paul goes there. And as was his custom, the first place that he goes to is the synagogue. While he's at the synagogue, he's proclaiming for three Sabbaths, three weeks, he preaches. And in that time, uh, many come to faith. Uh, Not just uh, Jews converting, but also Greeks, many God-fearing Greeks, uh, some who were very prominent. It says prominent women of the community, Greek women who were God-fearers, who were attracted to uh, uh, first Judaism, but ultimately to Christ himself, turned to faith. But this wasn't the case totally in the synagogue. In fact, uh, many of the Jews were very upset with Paul for preaching the gospel. Of course, they're pulling people away from the synagogue. Uh, that's one aspect of it. But they are really upset. And so what do they do? They cause an uproar in the city of Thessalonica. Uh, they, they, they sort of Remember, this is a prominent Roman city. It has a place of prominence. And here was a group of Christians who were declaring that Christ is Lord. Now, this was a problem for the Romans uh, because there was only one Lord, and his name was Caesar, uh, only one king. And so what the Jews did, who were upset with Paul and his companions, they took one of the um, probably more prominent Jewish converts to Christianity. His name was Jason. And they took him and they broke into his house and they physically grab him and they take him to the authorities and they say, listen, listen what these Christians are saying. They're saying that Christ is the king, not Caesar. Well, of course, the so there's this uproar that causes great persecution. And what do they do? They kick out Paul and Silas and Timothy and they have to leave Thessalonica. So why all this background? Why is this important? Well, we'll see in this letter that they, that is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, were upset. They, they loved this church. They spent time with this church, and now they were kicked out, and they were left to wonder what happened to these poor Christians who were facing all sorts of persecution as we walked away. Can you imagine? Hey, convert, and then we're leaving you to the wolves. Right? So Paul and, and his companions are deeply distressed. You get this sense uh, as we look at chapter 3. Uh, uh, these three men couldn't handle not knowing what became of the believers of Thessalonica. And so what do they do? They send Timothy back. They send Timothy back to get a report. Timothy goes to Thessalonica, and he comes back with this great report. 
Not that it was all roses. There's things that Paul talks about, but generally speaking, it was such sweet news for the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he heard about their growth in faith, their growth in love, and their hope in the coming of Christ. And that's what we want to think about as we start to consider this little letter. Those three things. Are we, CCPC, are we a church that is marked by those things? Faith, love, and hope. Now, I understand going through all that background stuff may seem a bit tedious, but I think it helps us to consider Paul's words as we hear his heart for the Thessalonians and we understand some of the trials that they faced. It helps us to apply uh, the word to us. So, with that, what I want us to do, I can, I can see is Timothy comes home uh, back to Paul with the report. And whether he had a written report or whether it was just his verbal report, I can imagine Paul saying these words, Look, God is at work in them. Look and be amazed at what God is doing. And, and to, to, today, that's what I want us to consider. I want us to look and say, how is God at work in us? How is God at work in you? I want us to look and see that faith, hope, and love. So that's the, 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 the place I want to head to. I want us to see that work of God. There are three marks of work that Paul thanks God for in the Thessalonians, which I've already mentioned, faith, love, and hope. And I honestly don't plan to go into great detail this morning because that's going to be the bulk of our preaching over the coming weeks. And so we'll leave a lot on the table. Um, But Paul does give some nuance here in our first few verses. Notice here he says, "We We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. You have those three qualifiers, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And I want to kind of tease those out a little bit and and ask what, what they refer to, what they mean. And so we'll just go through them. First, work of faith. Now, I say I have to start out with what that does not mean, all right? Um, We can read those words and we can immediately think, wait, does that mean faith is a work by which we gain acceptance before God? Is this something we do that we therefore can be called righteous because of our work of faith? Well, Paul, of course, blows this idea out of the water in the rest of his letters. If you have read anything in Romans and Ephesians, and, and, and really, any, any portion of Galatians, you will recognize right away that, no, Paul's not talking about a work of faith in that ultimate, I have to earn my salvation sense. Right? We know from Philippians chapter 2 that he says, at, you know, I think Jerome preached on this last week, he talked about, uh, Philippians 2 and the, the wonderful humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And right after it says, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Immediately following those words are these words. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do 
And this is what I think Paul is talking about here in this passage. He's talking about a faith that works itself out. Elsewhere, Paul will call this the fruit of faith, right? Galatians, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, here he's talking about it as the work of faith. It is, the, it is the working out of salvation. Remember, James says, faith without works is what? Dead. So that's what Paul is commending them for. He's thanking God for the work that God is doing in their hearts. He's saying, I am thankful, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith. The way your faith bears fruit. I want us to notice one passage in in Philippians chapter 4 where we get a picture of this. Paul says, as he's instructing them, he comes to sort of the concluding points of his letter. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk, read there, how you ought to live, how you ought to work out your faith, how you ought to walk and to please God. And then he says, just as you are doing. He's saying, he's saying I want to encourage you to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling as you have already done. And so the Apostle Paul is looking on this church as he gets a report from Timothy and he is wondering at the work of God in their hearts as they live lives of holiness. I think there is a challenge for us uh, I think there's two challenges, and maybe you fall onto one side of this or the other side of this. I think there is the one side of us that we look at our lives and we think, all I see is sin. All I see is my failure. All I see is the fact that I try and I fail. I know what Christ says, that we, how we should live in his word. I understand what the moral law says. And yet every time I try to do it, like Paul says in Romans 7, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. Maybe you're like that. I, I, I'm often like that. And those things that we, we look at in our lives that seem so messy and ugly, the sin that crops up so easily, they overwhelm our vision. Right? All we see is our brokenness and sin. And we start to wonder, am I really saved? Is God really at work in me or does this define me? Does this sin define who I am? There's an antidote to this. I think the antidote is... Not to say, well, I just need to lift up my bootstraps and work harder and try more and maybe then I'll do, I'll, 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 I'll be okay. But it's rather to take our eyes off ourselves and look at God and say, Lord, who are you that would love someone like me? Show me how you're at work in my heart. I trust that you are. 
You have promised me that you will give me your Holy Spirit, that you will work inside of me and that you will transform me. You've said in your word that you have given us the power of God in your Holy Spirit. Lord, show me. And I want, you to, I want to encourage you as, you as you consider this idea, look, God is at work in you, to consider where you see fruit. Because I think sometimes we're so quick to say, oh, but I see my sin. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's easy. <laughs> but where is God at work? And if you can't see it, turn to your loved one and ask, where is God at work in you? I'm struggling. I'm struggling with assurance. I'm struggling to know that God is at work in my heart. Turn to your loved one, your friend, your family member, and say, Lord, or friend, show me where the Lord is working. But the other, the other problem is to think that we've got it all together, right? That's the other side of the coin. I'm a good person. I've got, I've got it all worked out. I want to challenge you to, to see not just the brokenness of your own heart, but, but to see God. To ask the question, is it about what you're doing or is it about what God is doing? I think sometimes we get that flipped. To start to wonder at God who would take broken sinners, transform them and mold them into his image. Look and see God is at work in you to build up your faith and the fruit of faith. Second, we have work of faith, then we have labor of love. We know from 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Now he puts it second in this list, not because I think it's any less, right? Um, But I think he's actually going to end on this idea of hope in the coming of Jesus in his letter. He's going to end there, so he puts that last. But it's an important thing for us to recognize. I do think love is maybe the greatest, and I want to explain why I think that. First, I think there might be a better translation to labor of love, maybe. I don't know what you think of when you think of labor of love, but um, maybe a better translation to that would be costly love, a love that costs something, not just something, um, but costs something uh, great. Uh, It's interesting, Paul has great affection, he has great love for the Thessalonians, and they have love for him. One of the things that we will see as we go through chapter 1 and chapter 2 particularly is how much Paul pours himself out, sacrifices himself, not for any gain that he gets, but because of his great love uh, for them. But we'll also see their love uh, of him as well. Now, the word love here is one that maybe if you've been around Christians much, you've heard the term agape, agape love. And I just want to note here this idea of agape love. The Greeks had different words for love, and agape was one of them before uh, the New Testament was written. Uh, But it was not the most commonly used word. It was an infrequently used word. And so what what Christians did is they kind of adopted the word and transformed it and made it their own. Um, and what is agape love? It is costly love of the greatest 
form. First of all, it's not fundamentally our love for one another, but it's fundamentally God's love for us. This is agape love. You want to know what love is. It's Christ. It's His love for us. It's His sacrificial, costly love. And one of the aspects of this costly, agape love is that He loved us who were unlovely. While we were yet sinners, He loved us. We were not worthy of His love. And yet He gave all to love us. Not only that, but He loves us, lays down His life for us, And what does he get out of it? We don't add to God in a sense. We give him praise and glory and honor, but that's all his anyway. Everything that is ours belongs to him. So not only is it costly, not only is it, uh, are we unworthy of this love, but this love that he gives to us gains him nothing. And so as we think about agape love in the life of us, in the life of the believer, what it is fundamentally, it is the love of God in display through us. It is love that is costly. It is love of the unlovely. And it is love with no gain at all. And here the Apostle Paul says, I remember before our God and Father your labor of love, your costly love. Do you want to know what it means to be a Christian? How do we know you are a Christian? What what does the Apostle John say? They will know. They will know you are Christians by your love. Well, I'm not a very loving person, Rob. Well, go back. Go back to what I said at the previous point. Stop looking at yourself and start wondering in amazement at the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I can tell you, as you wonder in amazement at the love of Christ, of the love of uh, God in Christ Jesus for you, you can't help but spread that. It's part of what God does in us. Again, ask somebody, as as you say, do I actually love people? And your spouse might say, well, not all the time. You struggle sometimes loving me, but, but I've seen your love. But look to the one who loves and see how that love works itself out in us. Finally, um, there's this steadfast hope. Steadfast hope hope. Um, Another way to put this is patient hope, a hope that waits. And maybe this is the very nature of hope. We looked a lot at hope, both in our Advent series as well as in our study of Habakkuk. We looked a lot at hope uh, and how joy is derived from that that hope. Um, But I want us to realize that in the life of the Thessalonians, they faced from the get-go, persecution. From day one, they were facing persecution. Uh, this, is, this is just to describe what happened to Jason. Uh, 
as I mentioned before, he was, he was dragged away. Um, but I wanted to read it to you so you get a sense of what's going on in the life of the Thessalonians. And we'll see this played out more as we look at uh, the rest of this little letter. But he, it says here, Now, uh, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as, a great, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another King Jesus. Uh, Poor Jason. He ended up having to pay money. And people don't, at the end says, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. And the scholars sort of wrestle with, what did that mean for Jason? Uh, Some suggest that it meant if Paul were to return or Timothy or Silas were to return to the city, that Jason would then uh, be imprisoned once again. But they had to pay this money as as sort of a a security for their life. But if it it would be taken away, if, if Paul... Uh, and his cohorts were to return. We don't know. We don't exactly know what this meant. But whatever it was, was suffering from day one. And what enabled them to endure? What caused them to say, you know what? I can, I can, I can pay that fine, that penalty. I can endure being dragged by a mob out of my home before the city council. I can endure all of that. What was was it that enabled them to do that? It was patient hope. It was patient hope. You see, they looked forward to a better city. They looked forward to a day when Christ would come again restore things to the way they were meant to be, to bring about his eternal kingdom. They looked forward to that day. Now, Paul needs to instruct them a little bit more about the day of the Lord and what that means. We'll see that at the end of the book of the letter of the first Thessalonians. But they had steadfast hope. So what does that mean for us? I think, as we've talked about over the past months, We live in a moment, a time, where this idea is hard. This idea of waiting and being patient and enduring and longing is hard. But this is the good news. Think about the patience of the Lord. (laughs) The Lord waited Millennia, as he watched his people rebel against him and turn from him and, and turn to idols and worship other gods, as, as they ran away, he was patient with them. And he said, just wait, there's a day coming when I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to save them from their sins. 
And we saw that in Advent, didn't we? The patience of the Lord. He didn't treat them as their sins deserved. But he endured our rebellion that he might bring about the day of redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. And now we're in a new time of waiting as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when all things will be made new. And you say to me, Rob, well, that's all great, but there are days where I'm tired and I don't want to wait anymore. The writer of Hebrews says, well, you haven't endured to the point of shedding blood yet. Think back to these saints of old who were put to the, put to the stake, who were, who were burned alive, who, who suffered great injustices at the type of injustices that are happening all over the world, right? A few weeks ago, we spent time praying for the persecuted church. A few weeks ago, we looked in our Sunday school class at the the way that the the early church honored the martyrs. Maybe we consider the patient endurance of others and see how that might encourage us to be patient ourselves. Steadfast hope. But finally, and this is where I want to close, we have these three, faith, love, and hope. But I want us to recognize, and I think maybe most importantly of all things, to look and see that God is at work in you. I did not read verse 4, but I want to read verse 4. Unfortunately, in, in Paul's writing, he often runs on in his sentence, and it's hard to find a break. So we kind of broke it up, the first three verses. But verse 4 transitions to the next section. And it says this, you know, he says, you know, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says these words, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This is the good news. We can talk about a stool, right? If you take away any of those pillars, faith, hope, love, it stool falls over. You may have heard illustrations like that before. You need those, those three. But the reality is, I think sometimes we look at our stool and we think it's, it's really broken. And I want us to say, well, here's the good news. You have a stool that is gifted to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved you. Not because you loved him, but he loved you and died for you. Look, God is at work in you. But unbeliever, if you're here today and you are, you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, Rob, I, I, I hear all the things you're saying, but I don't know that I trust in this Jesus. I don't know that I have uh, love like you're describing. I'm not sure I have hope in his coming again. Um, I want to warn you that in the book of 1 Thessalonians, it ends with the coming of Jesus. It is a sure thing. And this is a day in which you are called to repent and believe. And it's good news because it means you are not 
the author of your salvation, but God is the one who saves. Friends, we are called to repent, called to depend, called to grow, called to love, called to faith, called to hope. But the good news is that God first loves. Let's pray.